Good morning, everyone. Great to see you today. And uh, as Maddie said, we'll be in Colossians 3. Looking forward to our time together um, in this passage. Um, Next week, just quick FYI, uh, next week, Lord willing, when you come in, uh, the chairs will be back to normal, so pre-COVID. So we have published at the start of the summer uh, a plan to uh, slowly, in the month of August, resume uh, things leading up to August 22nd when uh, connection classes will be back on campus, not on Zoom, and uh, we'll have food in between gatherings. So next week, that'll start. So you can come a little bit earlier next week. And uh, this half of the this, this section of the auditorium, those uh, wings will be open and we'll have some refreshments over there. You can see people from the first gathering visit with them and uh, chairs will be back to normal. So if uh, you're still um, particularly concerned uh, related to COVID, maybe you have um, an immunity issue or something like that, it would uh, encourage you to come early. That way you can make sure and find a spot that you would like to sit in, perhaps over in the corner, as far away from folks as you can get. Uh, but we're uh, leading up those first several Sundays in August to August 22nd when we'll start a new sermon series in Ecclesiastes. Um, because so many of you have signed up to serve, uh, which is wonderful, we'll, we'll be able to offer uh, children's full programming as normal. So that'll be great. And then we're just expecting a fall um, as close to what we were used to as possible. Won't be exactly the same, of course, but um, anticipating a really great time together. So next week, if I could summarize all that, just next week when you come in, know it'll look a little different in here and come a little bit earlier. That way you can visit with people, perhaps some you haven't seen in a long time. Uh, the Q&A that we've been doing, um, that will stop uh, starting next Sunday because we won't dismiss people as a group. So we'll let folks hang out in here as long as they want. And we hope to rebrand that and, and put it up in a different format uh, later in the fall. So those are a few things coming up. Would you look with me at Colossians 3, 12 to 17? And if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a blue one. It looks like this, and we'll be on page 573 in those. So verse 12 of chapter 3. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We have hit this uh, part in Colossians 3 uh, in such a way that we've come across that which is inevitable. What I mean is that after a couple of chapters in the Scriptures of dealing directly with so much theology, with a lot of wonderful teaching about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, then inevitably what we find next in the Scriptures is teaching about what we are to do. You see, 
Doctrine, rightly understood and humbly embraced, always impacts behavior. And so the Scriptures will take us again and again and again. It doesn't matter what book you're in. It will deal with doctrine, and then it will also address behavior. Knowing more of Jesus necessarily leads to living more like Jesus. There is nothing, as I said last week in your Bible, intended merely to make you smarter or more intelligent or more apt to win the latest Twitter fight. Everything in the Scriptures is there in order to equip us so that we would live more faithfully out of who we are in Christ. In the second half of Colossians, we're dealing with the applications and implications of the first half. So if you uh, perhaps were gone some this summer, or maybe you're new here, I would encourage you sometime this week to get together with somebody and read the first two chapters in Colossians. It'll probably take 10, 12 minutes, but you'll see a lot of wonderful things about Jesus Christ there. Everything in the second half springs out of what's in the first half. And here in the second half, Paul is very, very careful to ground the commands of God within the realities of who we are in Christ. See, in Christ, church, we have been made new. We are part of the new humanity, and therefore, we are learning, by God's grace, to live like it. The commands in the Scripture should always be heard as reminders of what Christ has done for us, and therefore who we are, and therefore how we now can live. That's why, as I said uh, last week, there is a sense in which this uh, section in Colossians is like riding a, uh, a seesaw, because it tips back and forth from identity, who you are, to behavior or lifestyle, what you do. And that rocking back and forth happens throughout the passage. Christianity is not principally about your behavior. It is first and foundationally about who you are because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for you. Now, of course, does that change how we live? Yes. But you didn't become a Christian through your behavior. You don't stay a Christian principally through your behavior. The gospel, you see, is the news, not of what you do for God, but what God has done for you in Christ. And that's why, even in these ethical sections of the Bible that tell us, don't do this and do this, the text is careful to rock back and forth between who we are and therefore what we do. Now, last week in verses 5 through 11, we saw what we are not to do. While today, verses 12 to 17, we're told what to do. And of course, this is not a comprehensive list. It's not as though if you, you really do well with this paragraph, then you've mastered the Christian life. Uh, that's not the sense in which it's written. But it gives us a sample of what our life together should look like. And so the big idea of this passage is that because Christ is now your life, you are to live like it by putting on Christ-like ways. Now, if you look at verse 12 again with me, you'll notice there in the beginning that it describes us, God's people, with three terms. It says that we are God's chosen ones, that we're holy, and that we're beloved. And so if you think of that teeter-totter, that seesaw, we're leaning really heavy here on the side of uh, the text that's emphasizing who we are. 
our identity in Christ. I love the fact that the text starts there. So take a couple minutes with me to consider each one of those three things because they describe you if you're a Christian. They describe us as a church. First, it says that we are God's chosen ones. Now, if uh, that hits us the way it ought, then what's ringing in our ears, if you're familiar with your Bible, is the Old Testament. Because this is a deeply rooted concept from the Old Testament. Here's one text that describes this in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping His oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What is it that made Israel Israel? It's the fact that God chose them. That among all the people groups on earth, He picked them to be His special treasure. Now that concept, Paul carries forward into the New Testament to describe the church. Just like the basis of Israel's corporate identity in the Old Testament was that God chose them, the basis for our identity, our uh, sense of who we are as people in the New Testament is that God chose us. So Christian, what this means is that you are not someone who's right with God because of your moral superiority or your intellectual proudness or your ability to get stuff done for God. No, what's made you who you are, what has made us who we are, is most foundationally that God chose us. We are right with God because He elected us before the foundation of the world. As a result, just like in that section we just read in Deuteronomy, notice that that moves immediately to this idea that we're holy. Now, usually when we think of the word holy, the first thing that comes to mind is we think of a, a, a holiness of life, and it's um, the way it's mocked, someone who's holier than thou. But holiness does deal with living a life of purity. That's true. But holiness is something even more basic than that. A, a holiness in how we live is rooted in the more foundational meaning of the word holy. The root meaning of holy is set apart. It's something that God does, not something that we do. God, you see, has set us apart for Himself. It's to take something or someone and dedicate them to special use, special treasure, special possession. God has dedicated us for Himself. Isn't that amazing? That God, because He chose us, has said, you are my people and therefore I set you apart for me. We are to dedicate ourselves moment by moment to God, yes, but we are holy in the sense of our behavior because we're holy in the sense of our position. 
We belong to God. Now, let's make this more practical. So think back with me, if you would, to grade school days when it was time to get picked for volleyball or uh, kickball, more likely. How did they go about that? Well, we all stood out in a big sea of people, and the two most popular kids in the school were the captains. And they said, I want you, and you, and you, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until people like me were the last one to get picked. But if you were among the the early few, what did you do when you heard your name? Well, suddenly you felt a little more swole, didn't you? And then you walked over kind of with some swagger that you were picked. And then you lined up or you gathered around that uh, chosen few. Friends, if we feel that way as kids over getting picked for some silly game, how much more ought we feel a freedom, a confidence, a joy in the fact that God chose us? And that that choice was not based on anything you'd done or had not done because it was made before you were ever even born. It's based in love. That's what takes us to that third term. It says that we are beloved. Friends, God loves you. If you are in Christ, you are God's beloved. The God of the cosmos has set His affection upon you. You are loved by the one who knows everything about you. That's quite a truth. That the one who knows things that you have not told anybody has set His saving affection upon you. You are precious and you are adored. God's saving love is an unconditional love. It's a love not rooted in behavior, but in God's choice. And that makes it a pure love, a love that is unlike any other love you will ever experience. It is a love that is a love because it's love. Now, we use that term so much, it's hard to really even grasp that concept. But let me put it again this way. God loves you because God loves you. God loves you not for what you do for Him, not for what you haven't done that would have dishonored Him, not because you grew up in church or what family you were born into. God loves you because God loves you. It is a pure love. This is a love, then, that you can sit down in. And you need never question. It's a love that is unconditional in the sense of it's not tied up in your behavior, but in Christ's on your behalf. It's an identity we share together. We are beloved. Church, by the grace of God, this passage about our behavior begins by saying in that teeter-totter, we are chosen, we are holy, we are beloved. Now, why point to those three things? 
Well, I think Paul must have had that passage in Deuteronomy in mind as he wrote that because all three of those ideas are listed there. But he starts there and then pushes up, if you will, on that seesaw to then tip over into what we do. That's the way this order works. We don't change our behavior because that would impact who we are, but we behave different because of who we've already been made to be. I love the way one British preacher put it, the surest sign that you are carrying a full bucket of water is wet feet. What did he mean? He means, uh, think back to if you've carried a bucket of water to mop the floor or to uh, go out and wash your car, then if you filled it all the way up, it's impossible to move it and not slosh some out. When our lives are filled up with truth about Jesus, when we are filled up with the knowledge of who we are in Christ, then as we walk through life, we can't help but slosh out that truth in such a way that our behavior is different. It's the natural overflow of an increased knowledge of who we are in Christ. If we would make lasting progress, either in the things we're not to do, the preceding paragraph, or in the things we are to do, this paragraph, it won't be because you try really hard. It won't be because you're better than some other Christian. It won't be because you've put forth immense effort and then earned more help from God. It will be because you've looked more closely at who Christ is and who He has made you to be. That is what changes our behavior. As our feet get wet with the grace of God, our behavior will more and more consistently match our identity. Now, one other comment before we move into talking specifically about the behaviors. Notice as you look at this passage that this is um, undeniably focused on our corporate nature. And so, as you think about this passage, you should be thinking we, not mainly me. If you look at this list closely, you'll notice here there's no vision of a private, personalized, individual faith that's sort of lived in a vacuum that doesn't impact anybody else. This passage is about us. It's about what we do together. God's plan, you see, has always been to have a people for Himself. He's not simply saving individuals and then leaving them as individuals. No, He's building a new humanity, a, a new human race, if you will, one that has been remade spiritually and is now being transformed into the image of His Son. Why? Why is that the emphasis? Why is that communal nature of Christianity the focus here? I think it's because, and there's lots of reasons, but I think most basically it's because anytime the Bible speaks about how we live together, it is getting down to the heart of what the church is. The church is the new community of God, and our purpose is to display something of who God is, and we can't do that very well alone. You see, God Himself exists in a community. 
God has always been God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Three persons, one God. And how do we know God? Well, one way is we look at how God interacts with Himself, how the perfect triunity, the Trinity, has for all time been in relationship within Himself. We, as Christians, have been gathered up into relationship with a God who exists in community, and so we exist in community too. How is it that we'll display something of who God is before a watching world? Well, we won't do that alone. We do it together. And so as we listen to these uh, ideas today about what we are to be, hear them as we consist as members of a body treating one another as God treats Himself. So what are the behaviors Colossians 3 then outlines? What are we to do? Well, the list breaks down nicely in two parts. There's first a collection of things referencing our unity in Christ. Their behaviors consistent with who we are as believers because we have been united in Christ. That's verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. And then second, we have some verses that deal with hospitality. Some things we're to do around the issue of hospitality, verses 16 and 17. So we'll look at the remainder of our time together, those two ideas, unity and hospitality. If you'll glance back down at your Bible, again, notice in verse 12 there are five things listed. They are compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now let me state really plainly, those five things are not personality traits you are born with. Ask any parent in the room. They know. See a few moms and dads elbowing children. (laughs) We do not come from the womb patient, kind, humble, meek. That's not what human beings naturally do. Quite the opposite. We spend uh, the first year tending to a child's every need, and then the next 17 trying to explain that's not how the world works. (laughs) This is Parenting 101. These aren't personality traits we're born with, but they are things accessible to us if we've been reborn. You see, in Christ, you have access to a kind of life you never had the power to live apart from Jesus Christ. That's good news. We as Christians were spiritually dead But because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, died on the cross in our place, rose again in victory, and He is now our life, then this description of Jesus, Jesus is compassionate, Jesus is kind, Jesus is humble, Jesus is meek, Jesus is patient. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then guess what you can live like? 
you can live like Jesus because He is your life. We together can live like Christ because Christ is our life. And verse 10 tells us that because we've been remade in His image, that image is now being renewed day by day. We are looking more and more and more in our behavior like our Savior. Jesus is all and all as we sung, and therefore we really can learn to be who we are. We can live as though we are these things because that's who we are. It is a lie to say that I am not patient That's just not who I am. Friend, you don't get that excuse in Christ. It's not true. There is not one of those five things that you cannot progressively live more and more and more like. This is the life that God has given us. There is hope for a different way of living. So how does that actually work, though? Because, um, frankly, I think for some of you hearing, you have available to you all five of those things. doesn't really sound all that encouraging because some of them you've tried to become more like and it hasn't seemed to work. So what hope does this passage provide? How could you actually put this into practice? Let me try to describe it in this way. Tomorrow morning you're going to go to your closet and you're going to pick out a shirt and some pants or a a blouse and a skirt. The point is, you're going to clothe your body before you go out. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Now, I want to encourage you, look at the start of verse 12. You'll see that it uses the verb put on. That is a reference to clothing. The central picture used through this passage is just like you clothe your body, you need to clothe yourself with certain kinds of behaviors. You need to intentionally take off dirty, nasty, sweaty, old, disgusting clothes, behaviors. You need to put on a better attire, one that's more fitting to who you are. Why does a doctor put on scrubs? Well, because that's who the doctor is. That's what she's going to do. So tomorrow morning, as you're sort of picking out what you're going to wear for the day, I want to encourage you to imagine yourself not only at a physical closet, but at a spiritual one too. And in that closet, there's five articles of clothing, if you will. They are the ones we've been talking about this morning. Kindness. Humility, meekness, patience. That's a sample of them. Now, what you can do is use one of them as an example. Uh, You can say, let's take kindness. You can note today, so I'm speaking as though it's Monday, I'm standing in my closet. Today, uh, I have a meeting with X person at the office who I don't like. He or she is not kind to me. 
he or she is rude and self-centered. And I find at least on the inside, like I would rather spill my coffee in her lap than be kind. And so, God, I recognize today I need your help. And so, as I'm putting on this shirt physically, help me to also put on kindness. God, I can think about the fact that you're listening to my prayer, which is so kind, and I don't deserve it. And may I display the same kindness in how I interact with that person. Friends, if, if uh, you clothe yourself in that way before you ever leave the house, you're much more likely to behave in kindness. Does that make sense? Try it. And throughout the day when you recognize, oh, I've, I've slipped back on that nasty, sweaty unkindness, well, take it back off and put the new back on. Now, that procedure I just outlined is a great way to think about the day. It gives us a general approach to putting off old behaviors and putting on new ones. However, the passage we're in is speaking principally about our life together as a church, and it gives us explicitly two ways that we do this. Put that differently. How is it that you clothe yourself with the five? Well, it actually tells us how in verse 13 by giving us two things to actually do. Number one, bearing with one another. And number two, forgiving each other. Paul is saying, here's the means through which you put on the five. They are bearing with each other and forgiving each other. Let's spend a few minutes thinking about those. First, bearing with one another. Spend enough time with someone, and you will notice there are things about him or her that serve a bit like sandpaper. Even those obnoxious couples that go out wearing matching shirts go home and bicker. Nobody spends long with someone else without feeling in some way ruffled. So I want you to turn to somebody near and say, sometimes you're hard to deal with. You've been wanting to do it. Go for it. Now, if that's true for two people, how much more is that true for a whole group of us? If individuals have to bear with each other, how much more does a whole church have to learn to bear with each other. We all have quirks, flaws, imperfections, ticks, oddities. And that's to say nothing of the fact that we all still struggle with sin. And so, the way we put on kindness, humility, meekness, compassion, is by bearing with each other. As we're in relationships and something rubs us the wrong way, then we clothe ourselves in a way consistent with who we are by overlooking whatever that thing is 
and not letting, us, not letting ourselves be graded by it. We put up with non-essential differences. We overlook minor offenses. We don't wear our feelings on our sleeves. As God's people in Christ, we work hard against resentment and aggravation and bitterness. We aim to never relate to one another in pride, but always in humility. And then when we do sin against each other, then we do what the Scriptures say. We forgive. Brothers and sisters, when in the course of our life together as a church, we hurt one another, the Scriptures tell us that the way we put on that which is consistent with who we are is that we forgive. When we put back on the clothes of the old self and we sin against each other, and we will, then we, when we come to recognize it, we take that off and we put back on forgiveness. We are commanded to forgive. And forgiveness, church, is a, there's a lot of confusion about this. And I think it's because experientially, forgiveness often feels like it's a process. It doesn't feel like a light switch. It feels more like a dimmer, doesn't it? And yet, forgiveness is a decision. You decide, I am going to, by the grace of God, forgive. Now, learning to have your feelings in accordance with that forgiveness is often a process, especially if the offense was large. And yet, you can, in Christ, decide to forgive. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a choice to say, I am not going to hold this thing against them. I'm going to release it to the Lord. And functionally, what does that mean? Well, it means you're going to absorb the blow of whatever that thing was. You're going to take it and you're going to move on. That's forgiveness. That is a choice you make. Now, sometime perhaps we'll deal with forgiveness as itself, in itself uh, as a whole sermon. But when we forgive, we are saying, I choose to absorb the blow of that thing. Now, you can say, that's not fair. And in a sense, it's not. But yet, what is the standard of our forgiveness according to this paragraph? What do we measure forgiveness by? We measure it by, is it like the kind that Christ has given us? It's a just as. The Greek word is kathos. I think it's a fun way to try to remember this concept. We, we forgive kathos just as we've been forgiven. So how much have you been forgiven? More than you'll ever know. And I'm just talking about this morning. We are forgiven infinitely. When we sin against each other, our standard is that we would forgive as we've been forgiven. So let's say somebody in your small group 
which we call around here gospel communities. Let's say somebody in a small group has sinned against you. What do you do? Well, I would encourage you, according to this paragraph, don't go find a new GC. Don't stop going to that small group. Don't give up on this church. Don't even, maybe this one is most difficult, don't even decide, well, from now on, I'm going to go to my small group, but I'm just going to turtle it. I'm going to hide in my shell. That way, I won't get hurt again. Friends, no, you, you, you don't avoid the person. You don't run from the person. You, you don't give up on walking in community. Instead, you choose to forgive. You talk to God about it. You ask Him for the strength to uh, release that thing that happened. Just like Christ has released you from what you did. And then you try to just move on. And if you find experientially that after a while you're just not able to, then that probably means you need to go to that person and talk to them about it. And so go, set up an appointment and say, hey, I want you to know when this thing happened, this is how that felt to me. Maybe I misinterpreted it, but I felt sinned against. And I don't want to hold this thing against you. I have forgiven you. But in order for us to be reconciled, which is a different thing than forgiveness, in order for us to be reconciled, we've got to try to work through this. So help me understand what took place from your perspective. You don't have to do that if you can forgive and move on. But there are things in our life together that we can decide to forgive, but we won't really experience the warmth of relationship again unless we reconcile, which means you may have to confront one another from time to time. So go to your spiritual closet, ask God for help, put on the fresh clothes of compassion, humility, kindness, meekness, and patience, and concentrate on those traits in your interaction with that person. This is part and parcel of what it means to be united in Christ. Now, before we move on to verses 16 and 17, let me make two more observations really quickly. Number one, bearing and forgiving are not words that would be indicative of the time in which we live. This is not the behavior of the majority of people. These are not times in which bearing and forgiving are common. Quite the opposite. You don't need me to convince you of that. You already know it. The culture around us is not a culture apt at forgiving and bearing. We as Christians can choose to do one of two things with that fact. We can first choose to gripe about it, moan about it, complain about it, and talk like old people do about going to school. I walked uphill both ways, three miles in the snow to go to class. You can get out of bed and go to your class. Friends, 
if we take that posture toward the culture, all that we're doing is stiff-arming the very people that God would have us to reach. We also are placing ourselves on a pedestal as though we're better, and we're not. Some of the nastiest stuff I see on social media is written by one Christian to another, and that ought not be. Instead of bemoaning how bad everyone is around us, which, again, has the tendency of saying, we are so much better, and we're not. Instead of griping about how bad it is, let's instead devote ourselves to living differently, to putting on kindness, compassion, gentleness, humility. Friends, if we in our relationships with one another give ourselves fully to that, that will become like salt and light in Tempe. Because outside of the church, there aren't other communities like that. I think we should give up on bemoaning how bad it is and instead put all of those efforts into living consistent with who we are. If we do that, not only will our own experience of our Christianity be better, but the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ will shine brighter. There won't be empty seats in the room because more and more people will say, I don't know what that is that you have, but I want some. Let's give ourselves instead to that. Second, the second thing I'd love to point out before we move on here is I think there's a lot to affirm in our life together as a church. Uh, since COVID hit, many churches across the country have seemed to be coming apart at the seams. When you add up the, the pandemic, a very contentious presidential election, and our latest experience as a nation with racial reckoning, those three things combined in a very short amount of time have put lots and lots and lots of churches in a state of turmoil. Just this past week, two very prominent churches in our country, led with, by uh, godly, competent pastors, have found themselves embroiled in conflict, conflict that spilled over into the newspapers. Why? Well, those three things together have just caused such a problem. By God's grace, do you recognize that we've emerged without scandal? We have come through this last year and a half without vitriol and hatred and splitting and nastiness. That is a cause today to praise God for His kindness to us. I think we are ever bit as loving and warm toward one another as we were two years ago. And that is not the norm today. I want to encourage you with the maturity that God's given you. Praise God for the fruit He has borne in our lives. I don't think we have trouble putting on the right clothes and taking off the wrong clothes in terms of how we treat each other. But I do want to encourage you in one specific way. I think we could grow in our intentionality with one another. We could grow in having more touch points 
with one another throughout the week. We could grow in going out of our way to reach out and to encourage each other on the Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday. Uh, Phoenix culture is incredibly laid back. Um, I went to see somebody at work this week, um, at his work this week, and he was in, in his office. He came out and he was in shorts. And I didn't say this to him, but I just thought, that is still so weird to me. I've lived here 12 years, and it's still weird that people wear t-shirts and shorts to an, an office job. I'm not talking like mowing the grass. That is totally fine, but it's not normal. Most of the rest of the country doesn't do that, and it has nothing to do with the fact that it's hot here. It's, it's just the, the, the casual nature of our culture. I think that casual nature with which we look at life has a negative effect on the casualty with which we take our relationships with each other. I would encourage you in an, in an area of life that's this, us, to be more serious, to pursue each other more often with the intentionality of helping each other make progress in Christ. That is an arena in which if we do it, if, if you choose this week to say, there's two folks I don't normally speak too much during the week, and I'm going to call them both, or send a text to both, or go out for a meal after work one evening this coming week with somebody, you will have, invariably, if you choose to make that a not one-time decision, but a, a way of life, you're going to have an increase in opportunities to bear and forgive. And that's really great news because that's how you put on kindness, humility, gentleness. It's how you become more of who you are. Now, that's the unity this text talks about. Very quickly, let me spend just a few minutes on the hospitality in this text. If you look at verse 16, it starts with these words. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Friends, what Paul is saying here is God wants the Word of Christ to be at home within us. God wants the Word of Christ to be at home in us. His design is that we would labor to make the Word of Christ not merely a guest who stopped by one night, but rather an occupant all the time, a central member of the family. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, how do we do that? Well, there's lots of ways, but just like the last section, this section gives us two specific activities we're to engage in. We're to, number one, teach and admonish each other. That's how the Word dwells in us. And number two, we're to sing with thankfulness. How is it that Christ's Word would become the normal communication in the church? It is as we teach and admonish, and it's as we sing. Now, for the preacher, this is a bit humbling because it doesn't say by the preaching of the Scriptures. And so this is a great reminder to me that probably 99.5% of what I say from this stage, you forget most of the time before you go to sleep on Sunday night. 
And how is that not immensely discouraging such that there are no people who do what I do? Well, it's because the purpose of the preaching of God's Word is to equip the church to live as the church. This isn't about me. It's about you. It's about encouraging you through the hearing of God's Word that you would then turn around and admonish and teach each other. And here's the just cold hard fact. If one church member goes to another and says, hey, I learned something really cool, I want to share it with you. Or one church member goes to another and says, I think you're missing out on some of the fullness of life in Christ because you're doing this and you need to stop it. You're going to remember that far more than you remember what I say. That's just how life works. The body, living as the body, being equipped to be the body. The body, getting together and singing to each other. These are the ways that we'll remember. These are the ways that the the Word dwells in us. Now, another cold hard fact is, if you don't have a habit of private, personal devotion, if you don't open your Bible during the week, then you're not going to be ready to teach and admonish one another. And you might kind of stand and mouth the words, but you won't be singing from your heart with gratitude. And so this presupposes that we will be people who open our Scriptures and read ordinarily. I'll encourage you this week, if you haven't been doing that lately, there's no time like the present to begin. You can't change what you did in the past, but you can change what you do tomorrow. So tomorrow when you're putting on your clothes, also give yourself a little time to read the Scriptures. Read the next part in Colossians if you don't know where to start. That'll get you equipped and ready for next Sunday. Singing and admonishing. This is how God's Word dwells within us. These clothes are consistent with who we are. Now, if you're a Suns fan, this may be a little too close to home. But for the rest of us, let me use an analogy to close. If you were to go out today and buy yourself a Devin Booker jersey and put it on and then go to the court in the neighborhood, uh, you would not suddenly be able to score 40 points. You wouldn't uh, be able to shoot his patented fade away or dunk in the face of your opponent. The jersey might say Booker on it, but that don't make you Booker. Amen? However, this passage tells us, as Christians, we put on Christ. And so, as Christians, what does our jersey say? It says, holy. It says, chosen. It says, beloved. And what does putting that shirt on, clothing ourselves with Christ, do? What well, has a way then of reminding us all day? I can't play like Booker, 
but I can live like Jesus because that's who I am. Now, one of the principal ways the Scriptures has given us to do that, to remember Christ, to be clothed with Christ, to experience fresh and new the forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the sense of being bound together in Him as a church family. Well, that's the Lord's Supper. When you came in today, you were given a little uh, Lord's Supper Lunchable. And so we're going to take that together. If you are uh, a member of some church, a follower of Jesus Christ, then we would invite you today to take that uh, Lord's Supper Lunchable out, peel off that first top layer, and you're going to find a little uh, wafer like this. I'll warn you, they're gross. But here's what this is. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus took His followers, and he if you didn't get one when you came in, by the way, in the back where Austin is, there is some more uh, elements there. Grab one. Jesus, when this was originally done, it wasn't done in such a way that uh, not passing COVID was a concern, all right? And so literally what Jesus did is He took a single loaf of bread and one cup, and He broke that single loaf of bread. And if we're not careful, we lose some of the image and meaning by having these little Lunchables. So let me describe this for you. Imagine I've got one loaf of bread. 1 Corinthians tells us that one loaf represents this church. And he broke that bread that symbolized the breaking of his body on the cross. And that broken bread, he then ripped off piece by piece and passed it around. And the imagery is, we're all part of one thing. We're in one family, a part of one church together. And then as we eat, we're remembering, not simply Jesus' body was broken for me personally. Yes, it starts there, but we've been bound together, united in Him. And then Jesus took a cup, and he took a little sip of it, and then he passed that same cup around. Aren't you glad we're not doing that? But as each sipped of one cup of wine, they were being told, we all drink of the same forgiveness. This is a deeply communal act, and so I think it's just the perfect way to be reminded of how we'll live the Christian life this week, putting on the right things, is in relationship with each other. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we're so thrilled that you're here today. I want to encourage you not to take this supper because it will be of no benefit to you. This is a symbolic meal in which Christians remember our past experience of grace of God. And so as we take, we want to encourage you to go to God in prayer and consider your own status before Him. Perhaps today that it would be the day He would save you. Christians, this is the body of Christ broken for us. 
Would you take that cup? Christian Jesus' blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. When we forgive one another, we are remembering that Jesus died in our place. His blood was shed for us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We can forgive each other. Father, we thank you that you and your kindness have allowed us to taste of your goodness to us. We thank you that you have bound us together in the Lord Jesus, that we're part of a new family. Help us to live like it this week. In Jesus' name, amen.